hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. We're bowling along at the rate of 185 miles per day, but the old ship has to work hard to do it. She pounds away at the sea and makes it fly in all directions. The spray is flying over us all the time. There are lots of flying fish for company. And last night, by way of change, the sailor on the lookout got asleep. The officer of the deck caught him in the act and very properly cuffed him for it. Whereupon he drew his knife and threatened to cut Mr. Call's guts out. The next thing we knew, he was in irons, where he remains at present, with ample time to reflect on the folly of this conduct. If there is anything that a man on board ship ought to be punished for, it's going to be sleep when he's on lookout. For upon him depends the safety of the ship, its cargo, and all the lives on board. Ships are crossing one another's tracks all the time and a timely word from the lookout will see collision. Many ships have gone down this way and never heard of after. But such is life. There's an old saying among sailors, every man for himself and the devil for us all. That might be slightly changed and read, the Lord for us all. This was an excerpt from the diary of Captain John Drew, Voyage of the Franklin in 1868. Hey there, Dr. Karen Bellinger here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, where we examine society through the lens of work, over time and across cultures. This week, we're heading to the deep blue sea. We'll join the captain and crew of a 19th century clipper ship, an iconic maritime innovation that revolutionized sailing and global trade, despite being something of a flash in the pan itself. Our guest today, a natural-born sailor, of course. Boat builder and maritime archaeologist Graham McKay joins us to navigate a not-so-distant past, stormy seas and all. The life of a clipper ship sailor was anything but easy-breezy. This was soul-deep, hard work. So, let's rig up and set out on another grand adventure. Nothing but the vast horizon ahead as we ride the wind. Graham is the master boat builder and executive director at Lowell's Boat Shop, a working museum located in Amesbury, Mass. Lowell's is a national historic landmark and America's oldest operating boat shop. Prior to coming to Lowell's, Graham was a captain for the Ocean Classroom Foundation, which provides youth sea education and adventure programs aboard schooners. He also spent time as a commercial diver, commercial fisherman, and a fisheries scientist. McKay has a master's degree in maritime history and archaeology from the University of Bristol in England, and a bachelor's degree in economics from Harvard College. So what would be great is if you can give us a little context for our topic today. So exactly where and when are we going to be talking and what's unique about the time period and, you know, particularly what gave rise to the clipper ship at this time? You know, when people think about the, the lore of the sea and the heyday of sailing, it is the clipper ship era that they think of, these big, tall, 
square rig ships um, racing across the oceans. But the, the clipper ship era itself was actually relatively short. It was, you know, mid 1840s to, you know, really till about 1868, 69. Um, so it's about a, a 10 to 20 year period. And the 1850s really truly were the, the height, the apex of that time. So, um, I mean, there are, interestingly enough, there are economic factors and, um, you know, environmental factors that led to the rise of the Clippers. And, you know, those things were, were very short lived for that period, but it's not as though in 1868, people stopped using Clipper ships and, and moved on. Um, it sort of faded in and then, and then faded out. But uh, we're in the mid 19th century. You've got westward expansion going on in the United States. Um, you've got gold being discovered in California in 1849 um, and Australia, I guess, in, in 1851. Uh, you've got tea and opium trade going to and from China. So you've got a lot of these big deep sea ocean routes that are opening up, but you've also got a society that is getting more and more used to having the things that they want when they want. And so uh, that's sort of the environment that led to the rise of the building of clipper ships. So it's kind of a consumer driven thing in some respects, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting when you look at, you know, especially in this era, but really um, across the centuries at shipbuilding and um, ship types and trade, it's all, it's all driven by economics. And, you know, there were times when they, when they built much larger, slower ships, and it was because they needed to carry a lot and it didn't matter how long it took. You know, there, there were times when ships were almost too big to pay which is an interesting concept oh. you, know, you think the more that you could carry uh right. the more money you'd make but uh for the types of cargoes that they were carrying you would they were too big and so they required you know too much fuel or you know too many crew members and became more expensive to operate than the cargo would pay and again it's a function of of cargo rates too you know different cargoes pay different rates and uh, those fluctuate up and down, and they they still do today. And if a, you know, one one such example for the economics of of shipbuilding, there's a, you know, container ships or bulk carriers or you know the big tankers that you see today. There's a, mm-hmm. a size called a Panamax, which is uh, just large enough, or I guess just small enough to fit through the Panama Canal. So they they designed oh, okay. and built a ship that is essentially just as big as the locks in the Panama Canal. Um, And so you know that if you are shipping something on a Panamax carrier, that it will fit through the Panama Canal and you don't have to pay for the bigger ship to go all the way down around the Clipper ship route, Cape Horn. Ah, that's canny. And so what was it about the Clipper ship that, that made it fast, faster than the boats that were previously being used? When you talk about ship types, clipper ship is a ship type, but more often ships were named for the rig that they had, not necessarily the hull shape that they had. So schooners, barks, brigs, all those things, those are all rig types. Um, Clipper ships are named for their their hull type, which was uh, at the time narrower than 
typical ships and they had finer finer lines i guess if you think about the way you build the ship you lay a keel you put frames across and you basically build a big u shape right and the bottom of the u if it came out at a right angle to the keel and then went straight up that's called having almost no dead rise but if that sort of becomes a v then you're increasing the dead rise does that make sense uh, so it's just instead of having like a, a u-shaped profile if you like sliced right across the middle of this hull you see a v and so there's there's less sort of um wood in the bottom of the hull it sounds like almost if that makes sense i don't know if that thing is good a job as you're exactly correct it's a very shallow v but a v nonetheless and what that <clears throat> what that did was it it made the ship a lot faster uh but it also decreased the ship's carrying capacity so both of those things the the finer ends and the increased dead rise um decreased the ship's ability to carry cargo but increased its speed so um with the clipper ships, you are favoring speed over carrying capacity. And the other thing that they did was they uh, they increased the size of the rig. So clipper ships had very large sails for their size. And what that did was, again, it made them faster, um, but it wasn't, that was so they could go faster when there was very little wind. Um, any ship can go relatively fast when there's plenty of wind. But okay. it's it's when you get toward the equator and toward the doldrums and you need to use every little waft of air you can harness. Um, now you've got these big, huge, lofty rigs with big, huge sails. The downside of that was it requires a lot more crew members to handle those big sails in that big rig. So the the people, the the consumer is paying a premium for getting their product quickly. And the trickle down effect is that the ship doesn't carry as much cargo and it's much more expensive to operate because you have that many more crew to pay and feed and, and house. Yeah. in smaller space. So maybe it wasn't, wasn't as comfortable as some of these earlier ships. I'm not sure how comfortable it was for any crew of a ship, frankly. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. Was there any particular technology involved? You mentioned obviously that the hull changes changes shape and the rigging gets bigger. Was there any special technology needed to make these these clipper ships in this way? You're working with with wood and metal and cotton to build these ships, and that technology was evolving even then. So. Um, to some degree, there were technological changes that made these ships possible, which were the, the increased availability and use of iron fasteners in the hull. So uh, previously, one of the reasons for those big bluff bowed ships was that, uh, again, if we're going to get technical, where the planks came into the front of the boat into the stem, they needed to be at a pretty I guess, steep angle, almost a right angle, so that you could use wooden pegs to fasten them. But now oh, as you okay. have metal spikes available, you can take that uh, that shape and sort of make it finer and finer and finer. But really the, the technological development wasn't, the manufacture of, of rope was getting better so that you could have the rigging to support all those masts and yards and, and sails. Um, so those those were certainly technological advancements. I would say one of the one of the 
best and probably most expensive ones was um, they were coppering the bottoms of these boats. And so uh, when they build them, they would put a, a layer of tar paper usually and then some kind of uh, soft line or something like that over the top. And they would nail copper sheets all to the bottom of the boat and cover the whole bottom with copper, oh, um, wow. which prevented marine growth and made them faster. So if you didn't do that, uh, by the time you got to California three months later, you'd be streaming seaweed and, and a whole ecosystem of marine growth under the boat. Oh, so how interesting. So you, you, you're preventing drag. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're, you're, yep. But if you, I mean, copper now is exceedingly expensive. Um, copper then, you know, the, the price to copper a ship was, was astronomical at the time. So these were like Maserati ships. Oh, totally. What are traditional perceptions of a sailor? And where did these ideas about what a sailor is and what a sailor does come from? I mean, I think everyone has a perception of, of what a sailor is. They drink, they swear, they frequent <laughs> brothels. <laughs> uh, they're pretty generally uh, smelly and unkempt. And, uh, you know, that's not altogether untrue for some sailors, but uh, it wasn't necessarily true across the board. So. You know, that comes from a lot of the sailors actually on these on these big ocean deep sea voyages were Norwegian. And the Norwegians were, were a pretty tame group as a whole. And I guess the the packet ships going back and forth from, from Boston, New York to the UK, um, those were oftentimes had at least some part of the crew were were scousers as they were known. They were from Liverpool. Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, I never heard that term, scouser. I love it. No. Uh, so it's uh, one of the main sources of food, I suppose. They they always brought uh, salt pork, potatoes, you know, things that would keep a good long time. And uh, lobscouse is a a dish made from root vegetables and potatoes in sort of a sort of a broth with salt pork. Uh, and so that's what the the Liverpool sailors were known to eat all the time was lobscouse and they became <laughs> scousers uh, as they were generally known, but they, they were a bit of a rougher lot, tattoos, drinking a lot. And, and I think the, the drinking perception of sailors comes from the fact that most or all British ships served out grog, which is basically uh, rum mixed with water and lime. So, um, you had your water, which was potentially unsafe with bacteria and things growing right, in it. Right, right, right. You killed that by putting alcohol in it with the with the rum, and then you added lime to ward off scurvy. But if you think about <laughs> if you're drinking half a pint of rum every day, uh, you sort of become <laughs> dependent <laughs> dependent upon that. Uh, in your in your home life i hope that the the rigging gets less complicated as the day goes on it sounds like they might have been less and less a draught but yeah so they would have brought these habits home and d did they get did they get portions of rum to bring home with them or i guess they would go out searching for whatever the the local libation was so when a sailor got off of a trip they'd get quote unquote paid off and that they they'd get paid for their work uh and there were all sorts of things ashore that were designed to quickly separate the sailor from his money. Um, and bars were one of those 
things. And so they oftentimes were in a foreign place. They did not have a, a home and a wife to go to. Uh, they were living in a, in a boarding house and they were essentially waiting around for their next job. So, you know, where do you do that? You go to the bar, right? Mm. <laughs> so yeah. again, not their fault, but, uh, you know, there were all sorts of the, 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 the ladies of the night were there to take their money. And, um, I think sailors in general were, were sadly susceptible when they were ashore to have to being separated from their money pretty quickly, but they, you know, they were fighters to some degree because they, they had to be, uh, when they were on, on the ship, they had to defend themselves. And, you know, as with any group, a hierarchy would develop within the crew and they had to be tough. You know, you're, you're climbing a mast 150 feet tall in a raging storm. So they had to be, you know, strong and brave and all those things. Um, but yes, I, I think the general conception of a, of a sailor is that they are relatively coarse. Rough and tough and ready. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's so funny. I guess Jimmy Buffett got all of his ideas somewhere, right? It sounds like there's a historic <laughs> precedent for all of it. <laughs> yes. Comes by it honestly. What would be terrific is if you could just place us right on deck with one of these people, um, one of these individuals. When they wake up in the morning, how do they wake up? What's their day going to be like? And what are they worried about? You know, his day could start at midnight and they often did. So sailors, when you're underway out on the ship are maintaining a constant watch and on a, on a clipper ship, say okay. they, the 24 hour watch happened in four hour segments. So someone might come down and shake you awake at midnight and to get up and be on deck from midnight to 4am. That doesn't sound like the best shift. <laughs> no. And it happened every other night. There was a, a dog watch, uh, right around dinner time, And that, what that did was it, cause if you, if you take two, two groups and divide them into four hour segments, you, you're having the same four hour segment, uh, every day. So they would divide the watch at, at dinner time into two, two hour watches called the dog watch. Uh, and what that would do is would mean that if you were up from midnight to four last night, you won't be up from midnight to four tonight. Usually you're sleeping in whatever you need to wear out on deck. Um, and depending upon where you are, if you're at the equator, it's a, a very light outfit um, that allows you to stay cool. And three to four weeks later, you might be in a snowstorm off of Cape Horn. So um, yeah. your, your outfit and your kit changes pretty quickly as you go north and south. Yeah, pitching boat, right? I mean, this isn't like you're just bobbing along. <laughs> you're going, no, no, so are, no, are no. Are they going fast <laughs> 24-7? Is the speed maintained all the time? Oh, absolutely. They are trying to go, again, as they're trying to push the ship to its limit at all times. And, you know, speeds of 15 knots, um, you know, I've, I've heard tale of, of even faster. And that's, it doesn't sound like much. That's 18 to 20 miles an hour, maybe. But uh, that's extraordinarily fast if you're actually on that ship. And because every, everything on that ship is straining. And it's, it's terrifying. You know, if something lets go, then the whole the whole thing topples down. 
yeah, you come out at night and the ship's going along, you know, to the point where if you, if you fell overboard at night, you know, see you later, you might as well. That's why most sailors didn't know how to swim is that they didn't want to uh, prolong the agony should they fall overboard because they knew they weren't coming back. Really? And so, yeah, you know, half the people are on deck at any given time. Uh, you meet with your watch officer who would, would have been the, the first or second mate to relieve the watch that's on deck. And then uh, you'd be given a job. If it were nighttime, uh, you'd be given a job of either being a lookout or steering. So they'd send you back to the wheel and, and you would steer uh, and everybody else would essentially be idle. And you could, you could catch a few more Z's on deck if, if that were possible, but you were available immediately if uh, a sail change needed to happen, um, anything like that. So, and then the, the, the watch that was below that had been relieved could be called as well if something really immediate needed to happen. So if a squall was coming and you needed to shorten sail, you would call the watch below as they were called up on deck and then everybody would go to work. So even if you had your four hours off, you weren't necessarily free and clear. You, uh, you could still get called on deck, which is again why you would sleep in your clothes oftentimes. So here you are, it's dark, you get sent back to the wheel and you would uh, probably steer for a half an hour to an hour, depending upon the weather conditions. Sometimes if it were really rough, you'd have two, three guys on the wheel um, because that's what it took to, to keep the ship going for straight. For the strength to, oh and, wow, just to, to hold it on course. Right, because that big rudder is directly connected to that wheel. And, you know, when it's really rough and the, the seas are coming from behind, it would take two or three guys to hold that wheel. This doesn't sound conducive to sleeping at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. So sailors are known for their ability to fall asleep almost anywhere at any time at a moment's notice. Because if you, if you don't, if you're relieved from your watch and you go to your bunk and, you know, if it takes you half an hour to fall asleep, that's a half an hour of sleep. That you're oh, not that's time that. wasted. So, no good. Yeah, it's precious. Very precious sleep. And then at, at 4 a.m., the watch that you had relieved at midnight would all wake up, come on deck and relieve you. And then you would go back to your bunk for uh, four more or four hours of sleep until eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, and somewhere in there, you need to eat, take care of yourself, um, use the head, whatever you need to do. Uh, and then at 8 a.m., you would be woken up again. You get up on deck and you go through that same routine. Um, <clears throat> during the day, when there's daylight, uh, you wouldn't be, if you were idling, if you weren't steering or looking out or handling sail, uh, you would be doing some sort of work on the boat. You'd be scraping and painting. You'd be uh, repairing or making sails. So oftentimes they would make their own sails as they were uh, on a voyage. You would be uh, perhaps working with the blacksmith who was repairing metal pieces, uh, all, all sorts of work to maintain the ship. And that went on during the day when you could see in the daylight. Uh, and so you'd work till noon, then you'd get relieved again. And uh, you might be able to go below if there was no sail change or something that required your attention and maybe get a few more hours of sleep, but more often you'd be kept on deck to, to do work during the day. 
Uh, and then, you know, finally, so that's a four, then you'd have your dog watch around dinner and, um, and then you might be able to go to sleep from six to eight and then you'd be up again at eight o'clock at night to go through that whole routine again of steering and looking out until midnight when the next group would come up. So it's a, it's a very constant routine. It could be monotonous uh, as much as you think being at sea is ever changing and dangerous and all that. You know, when you're in the trade winds, as they're known, it's a pretty consistent wind. You don't need to change a lot of sails. And so your day in and your day out just becomes one big blur. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so it sounds like at least in groups, they ate dinner together each day. Did I understand that correctly? Yep. Yeah. So you eat dinner with your watch um, often. So if you were coming on at eight o'clock in the morning, you would eat your breakfast, uh, you know, with your watch prior to, to coming on. Ah, okay. Okay. So they, they did just sort of, and, and what would they... What would they eat if they weren't eating the scouser, the scousers' food? <laughs> the scousers were the people, not the food. Hopefully, there wasn't cannibalism on the boat. <laughs> no, they were they were always eating some some form of of that. Uh, depending upon you know, you might have some sort of fresh food the first week or two out from port, but then once that ran out, uh, you were basically stuck with with salted provisions. So. Uh, you know, hardtack, some sort of uh, bread that would keep and salt pork, potatoes, you know, there was a lot of hash, that kind of thing. Occasionally, you might catch a fish or two as you were out there to. Yeah, I was gonna say you'd think that they'd get some fresh seafood now and again. But did they slow down? Did they slow down enough to actually catch the fish? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you got you to catch that fish at 15 knots and rip its face off when you're with the hook. But, you know, the, the fresh provisions were, were few and, and far between. Um, sometimes the, the officers, you know, the captain and the mates would, I guess, bring their own provisions aboard that they could pull from to, to break up that monotony. But the, the general sailors, the, the foremost jacks, as they were called, were they were just eating steady diet of of the same thing you know day in and day out so you know breakfast might be a hash of uh you know potatoes maybe some some salt pork kind of thing like uh like bacon and mix that with the the hard tack and make make sort of a, a gruel or a hash and that might be breakfast um and lunch and dinner were again some concoction of the same ingredients just you know a different different way so it, it, it'll keep you regular you know <laughs> yeah. God help you if you're allergic to any of that stuff. All right. Well, food allergies are not there. They didn't exist then, right? Isn't that what no, they say? No, they were not. <laughs> they were not sympathetic to a food allergy on a Well, that, that's when you get thrown overboard rather than falling overboard. Uh, you mentioned some differences in the rations received by officers versus common sailors. How else were hierarchies expressed on board a clipper ship? So the common sailor lived quote unquote, before the mast, meaning the hierarchy on the ship, you had the officers, they lived back aft um, in the cabin back by the wheel in the very back of the boat. And the sailors, the common sailors lived in the forecastle, which was the very front of the boat. So they were separated by the entire length of the ship in between, uh, sort of by design. It's, it tended to stave off mutiny. So what, what were the credentials to, to get a gig on one of these boats? Other than, I, I don't know, it sounds like you have to be pretty, um, pretty okay with uh, tough conditions. Yeah, your credentials for being an officer were uh, 
you know, a, a license. So you had to really stay at it and work to be a captain or a mate. To be uh, a regular formist jack, you didn't really need any at all. And oftentimes, actually, people were, were brought aboard to be crew members who had never sailed. So sometimes they, they signed on because they wanted to go to sea. And um, they had maybe been coastwise trade, so small boats going just around the coast. Uh, and then they graduated to these big sailing ships. But uh, because they needed sailors in such numbers, they weren't always available for hire. Um, here's one of your now defunct careers, which is a, a crimp, as they were called. So a crimp would uh, scour the, the seaport bars and gutters for anybody that could fog a mirror. And then they would bring them and put them on the ship. And they got, in return, they got some portion of that sailor's pay. So the ship would pay the, oh. pay the crimps. And so this devolved into, you've heard the term Shanghaiing. I have. So to be Shanghaied in the day was to be in a bar having a drink and somebody either feeds you too many drinks or puts drugs in your, in your beer and you wake up. 10 miles offshore, headed for Shanghai. <laughs> Someone's tapping you. you right, you're needed right. on deck. <laughs> and you've oh. got a ripping headache and you don't know what happened. And all of a sudden you're going away from home for the better part of a year. And that's when you say, no, I'm allergic to hash. Toss me overboard. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> is it a foolish question to ask if, if this was a coveted gig? I mean, is this something some people really wanted to do? I think some people did. If you were if you were a captain of one of these vessels, you could make a lot of money. Um, if you were a sailor, you were in essence an indentured servant. So you get paid whatever the going wage was to be a sailor, but there were all sorts of uh, things in place to, again, separate you from that money. So <clears throat> ship owners would ship what's called a slop chest, which had extra things in it for sailors that they might need rigging knives oil skins boots um hats sweaters that kind of stuff is it uh, like a lost and found kind of thing <laughs> or, or is just go find something that might work no it's more like a, a convenience store on board oh you had to pay for it exorbitant prices oh so right. when you're stuck off the horn and you don't have a sweater and you're freezing you're gonna pay you know 10x whatever the going oh, rate would be for mean. that wow totally mean and it gets it gets taken out of your pay so all sorts of things could get uh taken out of your pay along the way so that at the end there's not a whole lot to pay you this was later on but the captain and the officers were were known to be tough in that uh they were they were brutal on the crew they were they would often beat the crew and be harsh to them. Uh, they were abusive to the crew. Or persuasive. They were persuasive. That's a kinder, <laughs> a gentler yeah. way of saying yes. it. <laughs> yes. Uh, his history tells the tale of them being uh, sometimes overly abusive. For one reason was that if you had to maintain order on board that ship. I mean, if you are a captain and two mates and you've got 40 guys who don't like you, uh, you can quickly be overrun and, and mutiny can happen. So you've got to maintain pretty strict order uh, because there's no, no one's coming to your rescue a thousand miles from shore. No. And the, the side 
benefit of that for the ship owners was that if you made life so horrible for the the sailors that as soon as they got close to shore they'd run you wouldn't have to pay them so you make life miserable you get to you get to San Francisco and the first night everybody runs away from the ship and you know you're you can keep all of those wages and not without having to pay them out you got to you got to get your crimps out and and in action right to restaff your ship yeah and that was the hard part especially during the gold rush was that you had no problem finding crew on the east coast that would go to california oh, you had bet. a really hard right, time right. finding crew to go back because everybody wanted to be out there looking for gold and then their hills. Is that the saying, jump ship? They all jump ship in California during the gold rush? Exactly, yeah. In 1849, uh, they, any, anything that floated, old whale ships, anything, people shipped out to California in, uh, with no intent on them coming back. So if you, uh, if you go in the Embarcadero there in San Francisco, which is nice flat land, which is the, the waterfront, uh, underneath the Embarcadero is wall to wall shipwrecks. So the old ships, they, they built the waterfront out to the old ships um, and just kept on. It was, they used them, I guess, as structure for building the waterfront. Well, right. That's the stuff that, that just crumbles when the earthquakes happen out there, right? Yes. I mean, isn't it? That's the, because <laughs> it's all built that on landfill and old rotten ships. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so sometimes the conditions were so bad or the prospects ashore, for example, in San Francisco during the gold rush were so appealing that a sailor could kind of stomach foregoing the meager salary he would have gotten. I mean, what, how would what they would be paid to do this backbreaking kind of brutal work compared to other options that people of their you know, background and training or, and skills or, or lack thereof would have at the time? Do you have any idea? You know, what are your alternatives? You can be a farmer. Um, you can learn some trade. You can be a blacksmith or something like that. Uh, or you can work in a factory. So, you know, this was one, one such thing. There's, you know, you've heard the term running away to sea. Uh, oftentimes, yeah. some of these guys were just running from maybe the law or, or some other situation at home that was not beneficial to them and right. so uh, this was a place to go where you would be housed and fed yeah but also was there anything to this romantic notion that you know i i think is floating around out there sorry that's a terrible pun talking about seaborne work but um this idea of getting a chance to see the world like adventure the youngsters had that idea uh getting to see the world but you didn't really get to see the world. <laughs> what you got to see was a lot of ocean. They weren't stopping in many places. So um, certainly there was the, the, the lure of um, Calcutta and the Far East and all of the cool things to be seen there. Uh, seeing the world, I don't, I don't think was, or the adventure of it, uh, I think after the first voyage wasn't necessarily the draw. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it sounds sort of like the business person who sounds like they have an intensely glamorous life going all over the world, but they're in airplanes and airport hotels the whole time. So, yeah. Precisely. Yeah. It is, it is work from start to finish. Brutal, frankly. It sounds pretty awful. So you, you mentioned that the officers could 
could make a good living. How did that work? What was the financial structure for them and you know, how good could it be? Well, as a captain, uh, sometimes the, the owners, the ship owners, uh, ships were often built and funded by shares. So um, it was a way of diversifying your investment. So if you had shares in 20 different ships, it was better than having 20 shares in one ship because if that one ship yeah. gets lost, there it all goes. Um, so when they went to, when a shipping company went to build a ship, they would sell shares and they would often require the, the captain to be to have some part of the ownership. Uh, and therefore he was motivated to make that ship pay. Yeah, skin in the game. He had skin in the game. And um, with those shares that, that paid dividends on whatever the ship made. But then also there was usually a provision in their contract that uh, some portion of the ship was theirs to fill. So if you were going to the Far East to fill the ship full of you know, tea and spices and all that, the captain himself could buy uh, a small cargo to fill that space of the ship with that he could then sell when he came back and uh and make a premium on it all right so so there were there were a couple of ways that the ship the ship officers could make good on this yeah they had they had uh you know just like today the the more revenue streams you have the better off you are um and they you know you needed capital the the captain needed the capital to buy the stuff to fill that space um but he also made a significant return on that investment when he got back provided the ship didn't sink which again yeah. well uh, how often was... <laughs> did that happen I, I mean I, I i don't expect you know hard figures or anything but i mean this sounds like it was pretty risky business that they're pushing the edge of the envelope on every trip anyway with their equipment but then you've got the weather to consider as well. I mean, how many clipper disasters were there, roughly speaking? <laughs> you know, when you think about the number of voyages, I would say that the, the incident of being lost at sea was actually relatively low. Um, but eventually, you know, a wooden ship being a wooden ship, um, they would wear out and eventually they would meet some disastrous fate in their lifespan so you know a lot of these boats ended up wrecking or sinking or whatever and so you you see that in the historical archive that over the you know over the life of a ship it might make 60 successful successful voyages but on the 61st it wrecks and that's what the historical record shows it is you know this ship existed and then it sank um, but if you put all those voyages together uh, your the incidents was relatively low. It wasn't like you had a one in four chance of, of getting shipwrecked on a, on a trip. Um, but again, that, that danger always loomed over the horizon. So uh, one place that I've always wanted to go, it's not terribly accessible, is the Falkland Islands, which are uh, just above the latitude of Cape Horn um, and just to the east of Cape Horn. So ships going west to east or sometimes east to west around the horn would get damaged in storms and they would limp into the Falkland Islands. Uh, in the Falkland Islands, it was exceedingly expensive to do repair work. And oftentimes the insurance company would write off the ship as a total loss 
and just leave it there. And so uh, Port Stanley is has several deep sea shipwrecks, if you will, or hulks in the harbor of, of damaged ships that were just left for centuries. Oh, that's interesting. And I, you know, that's jogged something in my mind. I feel like I've read that there are uh, old rusted out aircraft from the Falkland. Well, you can't call it a war. It was a, a military engagement, whatever euphemism they use. <laughs> so the Falkland Island is like the graveyard of, of old transport hulks. That would totally be an yeah. interesting place to go. I want to go too now. Let's go. Yeah, I'm free. It's quarantine. Is there a quarantine rule there? <laughs> it's an island that's hard to get to. Yeah, let's go. I'm with you. Um, and so, you know what? I wanted to circle, circle back for a second. You mentioned that the officers had to work very hard to be licensed. What kind of knowledge did they need to earn a license to captain these ships? Well, you needed some time. So you needed to pass exams, uh, which you still need to do today. Uh, but you also needed to amass a certain amount of sea time. And so usually you started as, as a boy, you know, the, the quote unquote cabin boy, learning navigation, um, how to sail the ship, how to predict the weather. Um, you learn all those things from the officers. And eventually you would sit for your exams and you would then you know, your first exam would make you a, a second mate. And then you would do that for a number of years, usually, and then you could be a first mate. And then um, you could be a captain. And the, oftentimes, you would have the license for a captain, but you couldn't just go out and get a job as a captain, you had to wait for someone to give you your step up. Um, so, oh. you know, sometimes you'd be the first mate, and the captain would die, and then you'd have to move up. And, you know, once you've done that, they're not going to uh, move you back down to being the, the mate. They just, you know, they give you a captainship. So um, again, that's a little bit of uh, opportunity and luck in, in that, but you still had all the requisite exams to pass um, to get licensed. If you weren't brought up with some sort of education, uh, the ability to read, the ability to do math, you weren't going to pass those, uh, those exams. So it's somewhat dependent upon your, your social, socioeconomic status um, in the first place to even get to that height. Was there a lot of competition among these officers of ships or was there some sort of, I don't know, if you call it a support network of sorts? You know, an old boys club, I guess. I don't know what it was called then. Uh, there was certainly that. A, a lot of it was, um, was family. So you'd often have, um, you know, a family of, of captains and it was a lot easier if you were the the son of a captain, obviously, to get your your step up, right? Yeah, that would help a lot. Yeah, coming at it the hard way is called coming up through the hosepipe, meaning through the what? Through the hosepipe? <laughs> through the hosepipe. So the hosepipe on a ship, the hosepipe is the big steel aperture in the front of the ship through which the anchor chain goes. Oh, right. Okay. Through the hosepipe is like I climbed up the anchor chain and and came through the front of the ship, which is where all of the the formist hands are right so you started as a lowly sailor and then you worked your way up to be an officer and that did happen um with the more astute of the of the crew is survival of the fittest right um but that was much uh more uncommon than uh coming up in a family of sailors 
um, or going to, um, you know, shipping out as a uh, cabin boy or in the Navy would be called a, you know, a midshipman or something. Um, and basically coming at it through uh, direct line. Yeah. It's, it's somehow that sometimes still happens today. <laughs> yeah. Well, nowadays you can't get a big ticket as they're called a, um, a big tanker ticket without going to a maritime school. Okay. Well, that, that seems though, like it's a little bit more egalitarian than having to sort of be born into, into the, into the pipeline. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and oftentimes too, when you say the old boys network, there were, uh, towns were concentrations of, of sea captains. So like, uh, Thomaston, Maine, Searsport, Maine, um, you know, Newburyport, there were all towns where a lot of these captains came from. And even if you weren't born into the family, but you knew them, that's your, that's your step, right? So uh, you'd get these, these large concentrations of captains um, in particular places for that reason. I can imagine a lot of risks, and we've already talked about a lot of the risks of doing this sort of work. What, in your view, is like the biggest mistake somebody working on one of these ships could have made? I think you try and cheat your owners is probably the, the quickest way um, and gain a, gain a bad reputation um, for that. So you, as a captain, have a lot of autonomy to make deals. You know, there were, there were ships agents in different ports who were finding cargoes and doing that kind of a thing. But, um, you know, the owners own the ship and the captain was in charge of getting it from A to B and sometimes doing some, some dealing when they were, you know, in a far flung port. Uh, and so if you, you know, crossed your owners, so to speak, um, that was one way to, to scupper your career for sure. Um, being brutal on a crew to the point where you actually kill somebody is another great way to, uh, to ruin your career as well. Um, and there was, you know, there were laws in place to prevent against that. And, um, you know, you can't, you can't reasonably hide having killed somebody when you get to port and there's 40 witnesses <laughs> getting off the ship. Right. So, um, yeah. you know, some of the brutality was, uh, was countenanced until somebody died. Well, were these ships at all vulnerable to, you know, I'm going to use the word piracy loosely. I, I, I think I mean theft generally. I don't necessarily mean, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow climbing aboard and seizing <laughs> the rum. But, you know, was that still a risk at this point? Um, by this point, not really. So um, really after the War of 1812, piracy was kind of done for. Um, just because the the navies of the world had at that point such a global presence um that there wasn't you know there wasn't the ability for widespread piracy to be a problem um but there still was then and even is now uh the most dangerous spot is the straits of malacca which is um you know southeast asia there there's a part of the ring of fire the pacific rim there there's a whole bunch of islands uh that's come down from from india and china um down towards australia and there are only a few 
passages through which you can safely navigate in the Straits of Malacca are, are the narrowest of them. And so it's real easy when all the shipping is squeezed into this narrow passage for, uh, to, to be a pirate. So that was, if there was a danger spot, um, that was it. You mentioned when we first spoke, um, that you had a certain, I mean, I think you actually might've used the word reverence, which is quite remarkable, uh, for, for some of these captain and crew members who were, you know, perfectly suited for their work and environment. What, what do you mean when you say that? What would make somebody perfectly suited for this kind of work and environment? You know, when I say I have this reverence, what it is, um, is that in, in the way that uh, an animal adapts to its particular environment, uh, these captains and sailors had adapted to that environment, the marine environment, um, to the point where your ability to predict wind and weather um, is so innate that you don't even think about it. Um, you know, and it's it's a thousand little sensory things that you do to know. Oh, you know, we're probably going to hit some fog up here and. Um, the wind, you know, around this latitude shifts from northeast to southeast and, you know, all these little, <clears throat> these little things. And when you think about their, the area that they had to navigate, which was global, um, you know, they had all this, this innate knowledge of those, of that whole, of the globe, really, and the winds and the, the, the different variables at, at any point in the voyage. Yeah, that remarkable attunement to the surroundings and not just in a static sense, but I mean, just the, the degree of experience and, and, you know, quick wits one would need, it sounds like, to successfully navigate these crossings. Yeah, it's, and even, even to the extent that a, uh, a captain or a sailor would know their particular ship um, and know the limits to which it can be pushed. And, uh, you know, I sailed with this guy who had sailed on this particular schooner for, you know, a couple of decades anyway. And, you know, he was sleeping and he, he came up in the middle of the night and, you know, he walks back to the wheel and he, he screws the nut that had loosened back onto the front of the, the wheel and he goes, ah, goddamn nut loosens up every three months. And he could hear in his bunk the rattle of the oh my gosh loop the wheel <laughs> you know little little teeny things That's like that amazing. that i i think are fascinating yeah so how did these clipper ships and the work done on them revolutionize sailing uh, i think clipper ships at least for the general populace proved that it was possible to get goods from one place to another relatively quickly on a global scale and I think as humans, we don't we don't have a lot of patience for that backtracking. It's only going to get better and faster. Um, and so what it did was it, it created this um, desire for more rapid transit of uh, goods and information. And so I think it revolutionized things that way. And it was uh, it was that desire that actually eventually killed them. So in two things happened in 1869 that were you know they were already on the decline but was the absolute death knell for them which was the opening of the suez canal and wow. 
the the driving of the the golden spike at at Promontory, Utah, making the East-West Railroad complete. So now goods could go from the East Coast to the West Coast overland much more quickly. Right, um, right, right. And uh, steamships in the 1860s were were certainly making long voyages, but they weren't efficient enough to take business away from the clipper ships, meaning you couldn't take a steamship from Boston to San Francisco um, because it had to, the engine itself wasn't efficient enough and you had to carry too much coal and you couldn't carry enough cargo and it wouldn't pay. But as soon as the Suez Canal opened, you could get tea from China back to Europe um, with steamships much more quickly than you could sailing down around Africa. Yeah. Well, because I was going to say the railroads are fantastic for just intercontinental travel, but when you're still looking at these global markets that have been opened and the trade amongst them has been accelerated by this fast trade in the clipper ships, I, I just wondered what, what, what actually caused the clipper ships to essentially fall from favor? Was there really still no, no trade routes that would have been well served by the clipper ships? Um, that's a good question. And there were, but they weren't as high paying. And so, um, again, economics was the thing that killed them. So because they were built um, for speed, not capacity, they once those high-paying uh, cargoes disappeared, then um, the clipper ships didn't make sense anymore. And so they, they evolved into um, what became known as, uh, at least in this country, as the Down Easters, which were <coughs> clipper ship-like, but they were much larger. Um, and could carry much greater cargoes. And so the, the long distance deep sea routes still had uh, economic viability for those kinds of ships really right up until the turn of the century and a little bit, a little bit beyond. Um, but in the, in the later days, like in the last days of this uh, was the nitrate trade. Sounds very glamorous, but uh, what it really was, was these ships would stop, they would take a cargo of goods maybe out to the West Coast or, um, or Alaska or you know, somewhere in the Far East. And on the way back, they would stop at Peru and they would load the, the ship full of guano, which is, uh, well, you know what that is. I don't need to yeah, spell that one out for you. Poo. <laughs> it's poo. <laughs> so they would load the thing, which was used. Uh, there were the Chinchas Islands in Peru were, were like 20 or 30 feet deep in, in bird poo. Um, and so they'd stop there and fill the ship full of guano and bring that back to Europe to um, fertilize the fields because, you know, they've been farming in, in Europe for millennia and uh, the fields needed a different source of fertilizer. And so that was one of the last cargoes. Oh, interesting. So the, it, it went out on a wave of poo. <laughs> it always comes back to that with this podcast, doesn't it? Um, thought, we just, you know, we, we just like to keep it earthy, Grant. That's all. <laughs> uh, yes, it went out on a, it certainly went out on a wave of poo, which you can imagine is not a particularly high paying cargo relative to tea or opium. What was the most precious cargo these clipper ships carried? Uh, it, it was at the time, opium uh, going from India to China. And it was used medicinally, but uh, it was also undoubtedly 
abused. Uh, and then the, I would say the tea and spices were not far behind in terms of being a, a high paying cargo. Uh, if you think about the price you would pay for those things versus the volume that they occupy in a ship, it was a, a very high paying cargo. Well, Graham, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you about this topic. And um, I mean, I had no idea how the clipper ship really, I mean, it really did transform world trade in this sense. Um, And I sort of wonder what would have happened if the railroads hadn't come along when they did. I mean, I know plenty of people who would nowadays kill to go on one of those ships from England to Australia, but... They don't exist any longer, unfortunately. Um, you know, back then it was it was a uh, hell trip, but nowadays people would, would kill to do it. They would. Well, you're a boat builder. I don't know. I think that sounds like an exciting idea. <laughs> I'm trying to get as close as I can. <laughs> well, you got to keep us posted. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Ah, uh, life at sea. Archaeology tells us that maritime navigation has been a fixture of the human experience for millennia. And yet so few of us today are even passingly familiar with its realities, its rigors. Now that I know a bit more, I'm with Graham 100% in his deep respect for those mariners of old. The sheer adaptability and resilience needed to endure those brutal voyages is astonishing. They braved some of the harshest, most terrifying conditions a person could ever face, over sailings that lasted months on end, often simply to make ends meet. Well, at least until the lights of that harborside bar beckoned. And yet, the captains and crews of 19th century clipper ships did just that, facing off against nature, for sure, but equally against each other navigating complex hierarchies, not just on board their ships, but within global economic and social structures. However bad morale might have gotten on any given ship at any given time, though, it would have been uniquely exhilarating to gaze out across the vast ocean, riding atop the race car of its time, one that forever transformed world trade and consumer appetites. These sailors were history makers of seismic import, though they couldn't have known it at the time. Isn't that so often the case? As always, thanks for listening. May the wind be at your back. Until next time. Hey there, awesome human. You can follow today's guest, Graham McKay, on Instagram at Graham A. McKay. And check out Lowell's Boat Shop on Instagram as well, at Lowell's Boat Shop. They do such cool work. Special thanks to CrossTradeWind.com for providing this episode's opening passage. As always, we're on social media at Working OT Series, with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Until next week, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham.